welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today, I'm speaking with Ian, who is going to come on and tell, talk about his conversion story and like this really dynamic process of him um, desiring to be Catholic and that whole process. And he's going to also talk about um, what it means to be a social Democrat. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on and sharing this information with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So glad to be here. Yep. So especially considering that the inauguration happened a couple of days ago and the election not too long ago. Um, I just think it's always important to, um, you know, highlight and talk to people who are deeply involved in the political process because those opinions matter. And like these opinions have like real world implications and definitely want to hear as many people I can, regardless of the political ideology. And I think it's, I think Ian will definitely do a good job and highlight some information on like, what it means to be a social democrat. So let's um, dive into the first part of the interview. Um, so you were telling me that you were um, you were a former Protestant, and now you're undergoing that RCIA process. So tell us about your faith journey. Like, how was it growing up, middle life, and like now, and how did you come into the Catholic Church? How did you decide to do that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. I actually, so my background, I was raised evangelical, uh, definitely on the edges of Chicago land there, uh, Midwestern Protestant by birth, Catholic Atlantean by choice. Uh, more specifically, um, I actually worked in former, I, I formerly worked in a ministry setting, uh, dealing with refugees pretty much uh, here in East Atlanta. And so, yeah, uh, my grandfather, you know, I was raised with my grandfather, who was a minister to truck drivers. Uh, faith was always a real big deal with my family. And so, yeah. Uh, so for a time, like I said, I was involved in immigrant ministry there um, within that context with my wonderful wife, Erin, in that faith context. Uh, my background in intercultural studies, experience with Muslims, people of other faiths, watching the far right really overtake uh, my faith and living in a setting where I was somewhat of a minority was part of the catalyst when it came to, uh, you know, beginning to understand the interpretive differences uh, between different Protestants and, you know, where the breakdown was as far as all the disunity in the Protestant world, uh, but then also drawing it, drawing myself into, you know, the authoritative interpretations and just kind of the importance of apostolic succession in the Catholic Church. Um, it also challenged my own, uh, my own sense of rationality, you know, as a 21st century white, you know, 27-year-old, <laughs> uh, you know, Western American man, trying to interpret these texts that are from the Middle East, you know, that are from the first century, uh, from a Jewish perspective. I just saw how my own rationality and my own perspective always seemed to fall flat in so many ways. I really appreciated hearing Nate's story because like him, I feel like I went through the Eastern door to get to the Catholic faith here. Uh, it really was kind of, as I learned more about, you know, the way that, that we in America especially a, a lot of white America is so individualistic in a way that is something that is not really reflective of how, you know, people would have interpreted or do interpret it uh, in, in the Middle East. And so I was really drawn to faiths that were really deeply culturally attached to, you know, where, what, where Jesus was stepping into. Um, and so at first, like I definitely, and I still really value the Orthodox church. Um, I still really value that faith tradition. Um, but over time, I really, through a series of different conversations I was having with people, I really began to be drawn towards the Catholic Church. And so that's, that's where I'm at now. And uh, 
as, well, as I mentioned to you before, you know, as of only recently, I've applied for the RCIA and going through all that, um, just because through transients, my life being as transient as it has been the last couple of years here, I've wanted for it to work out that it, I, I wanted to work out that I would go in person, but of course with COVID, you know, it's got to adjust, so. So as far as key people in my faith process goes, it's really been scattered across a lot of people. Um, you know, I, Soren Kierkegaard, actually, the existentialist philosopher, was someone who brought my faith back from the brink. You're smiling and nodding here. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, so he's somebody who was really pivotal for me, like early on, as I began to kind of uh, become disillusioned with my own faith. Like it was really, he was someone who really was very solidly there. Uh, this guy named Father Thomas Hopko, who's a semi-famous um, Orthodox priest, bishop, father, uh, who really helped me flesh out through his exegesis a lot of the Sermon on the Mount um, in a way that I found to be very helpful. Um, there are other people along the way, you know, I, I uh, for a brief time, I did live in Hong Kong. Um, and that was actually where I went to a first mass that I really actually was like there intentionally. Like I had been there to mass, like I had friends, you know, that would say like, or, you know, friend, family friends that we would go uh, to mass with. And I would just kind of sit through it and not pay attention when I was a really little kid. Um, but my first time going intentionally with the intention of like, is this really it? I went there and it was really funny that the father actually got up and he said something to the effect of, if we really believe what we're saying and doing here, then this needs to fundamentally restructure our economy and our society and how, how all of this works. Because I see these skyscrapers, I see all this wealth, and I see over here all, you know, these grannies that are, you know, they're getting cardboard and they're turning it in for, for pennies. Uh, and I see these bankers walking right by them that are, you know, billionaires, you know. And so uh, I was I was floored by it because we were we were uh, the parish itself was actually in the district um, where a lot of bankers and a lot of very, very wealthy people uh, live. The parish itself was situated underneath a skyscraper. It was really interesting. And so I was totally expecting, you know, um, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I do know that social pressures and things like that do really push people to, to really feel compelled to say certain things or maybe to water down the gospel. And so the fact that he got up there and he authoritatively was like, I don't care. I know you're not going to leave this church because you're Catholic and you know that this is the real church and this is the real deal. Um, you know, it really spoke out to me because there was a couple of Protestant churches that I had been to where they really were pretty soft on that, especially in wealthier areas and, and, and areas where they wanted to to play to a specific audience. Um, so, yeah, that was that was definitely really pivotal. Lots of other people um, really were powerful in it, as well as my wife's grandparents. Actually, uh, we spent a lot of time when we were in ministry. Um, doing a lot of fundraising. And so they let us stay with them a lot. And just their simple generosity, really. Like, I mean, like, there's a lot of headiness that I wrote down in here as far as, you know, people who've impacted me, people from, you know, Dorothy Day to Jacques Maritain, um, you know, personalist figures like them. Um, or even like, I, I have a friend who's in seminary right now up in Michigan, uh, who used to pray for us. Um, and we used to have some really good conversations. But I'd say both Father Thomas at Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Hong Kong, but also uh, Maoist grandparents were, were really pivotal in all of that as well. Just with their simple generosity of spirit, 
uh, and, and willingness to have these kinds of conversations and just totally embrace us no matter where we were at and everything. Um, and just to always encourage us towards, towards where, where, where we're going now, you know, I think that that was, it really spoke volumes to me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that information. A lot of great names and especially those existentialist uh, philosophers. Um, I can't tell you how many of these interviews that I've done with people <laughs> and people have highlighted um, like Soren Kierkegaard and um, uh, Frederick Nietzsche uh, as, as pivotal players for their Christian conversion. Mm -hmm. So definitely something about those existen existentialist philosophers. Uh, <laughs> so the next question has to be uh, centered around you. And you, you, you said you were, you know, pretty new to the Catholic experience and you're undergoing that whole process of the sacrament of confirmation. Uh, what would you say to somebody, you know, who wants to become Catholic or who is discerning maybe, hey, the Catholic church is the place where I should go. What's one piece of advice that you would say that you took? Um, what I would say, I guess, is, you know, when a firefighter risks their life to save a kid from a burning building, when a parent works nonstop to give their kids a shot at a better life, when someone dies or sacrifices something of themselves, so another might live or thrive. Uh, I think most would agree that there is no higher good than that kind of self-giving love. Um, and so Jacques Maritain, I'll, I'll pull his name again. Uh, you know, he summarizes the purpose of life with the phrase self-mastery for self-giving. Uh, Christ is the perfect and emb perfected embodiment of that. And the Catholic Church is definitely in the business of fostering that kind of self-giving love on a communal level that defeats evil, injustice, and even death. Um, and, and if you're already a Christian, you know, that's generally speaking to anybody. I think anyone can recognize the value of that self-giving love. Um, and then, you know, you can raise questions about, you feel free to raise questions about, you know, who Christ is and that. Um, but then also, too, you know, if you're already some kind of Christian, why not? My, question to you would be, you know, why not go all in? Uh, and then I'd stress the importance of, of the living church as opposed to a church that focuses too heavily just on a book uh, and just kind of, you know, comes up with new interpretations every couple of years uh, that breaks off into so many of these different traditions that also are valuable, that also are, are, um, have contributed so much into Christian history more broadly. Um, but yeah, but, but that critical role of apostolic succession uh, being played into the living church that Christ establishes and gives to us is something that I think is really important. Really good advice for somebody, especially the points about, you know, a living church and the importance of apostolic succession, because those two things are um, strong reason why I ended up becoming a Catholic. And I found the Catholic church convincing is that this idea that we have both the invisible and visible institution. And, and I think it like, a lot of times in Protestantism, we just focused, or they focused a lot on just, we were just an indivisible or invisible collection of believers. But yeah, that's true. But also I mm -hmm. think there's that physical um, boundary that we can clearly point to that really made me take pride in wanting to become a Catholic. Like, yeah, I can, I can see and point to um, like a, a, a living institution. Um, so yeah, that was a good point that you mentioned. Um, so let's go to the next part where, we, where we're going to talk about, um, you know, your, your politics and political philosophy. So as I said mm -hmm. at the beginning, you know, politics is real world stuff. Like we're making, we're talking about issues that impact real people. Um, you, pre you frequently post about, you know, um, popular people who've influenced your um, political philosophy and you 
support different causes. And I remember you told me that you, you know, volunteered in the latest Georgia Senate runoff um, election. So um, how would you describe your political philosophy <laughs> and how did you come to adopt this perspective? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I always like to start with this quote by uh, Charles Pegui. Uh, he says, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Um, so just a little background of myself in this specific area. You know, I was raised in quite a conservative household in my teen years. I am a little embarrassed to say that I did flirt quite a bit with libertarianism, actually, um, which I would argue is evangelicalism's political half-brother, but maybe that's another conversation. Um, but yeah, but when I started my first job as a second shift custodian at a steel forge, uh, I quickly realized and saw how much of a dehumanizing dictatorship the average workplace can be. Um, so during lunch breaks and extended time <laughs> cleaning in the bathroom, I actually spent a lot of time reading different works, you know, from different social theorists, a lot of them anarchists, Marxists. Um, but also it was interesting, too, because it really tied in. Uh, I would read patristic, like early theological texts and everything. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely something that was really there uh, as we were working through this. And I was working through where I believe we need to go as a society surfaced. Um, so immigration and the environment. A lot of my coworkers had varying immigration statuses, differences in where they where they stood with all of that, um, as well as, of course, you know, we were working in a steel forge and just the questions of environmental impacts also came up. And, you know, and how do you balance all of these interests and things like that? And that's only the beginning of it, because, you know, as I grew, I began to kind of see more and more that there were uh, a lot of other things to definitely consider. Um, so while I've been all over the political spectrum in my life, I've really come to emphasize the necessity both of social democracy and economic democracy. Uh, I'm comfortable being called a socialist, a progressive, uh, social democrat, um, a cooperativist, but I tend to stress social democracy as most as an alternative to the political individualism of American politics for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the most notable reasons, uh, because there are existing examples of its successes uh, in certain specific countries and at different times, um, because we don't have another hundred years to work out a utopia, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we have a climate crisis with a nine-year deadline now. Uh, we have a housing crisis now. We have a refugee crisis now, and we have a rising white nationalist problem paired with unaccountable, heavily armed police forces now. Uh, other political ideologies may definitely have answers to, but lack the infrastructure to implement those changes. Uh, and they don't necessarily have all the time that they need to be able to do that. Um, it's also out of urgency and recognition that the central pillar that seems to plague us is this economic dictatorship. Uh, there are lots of things I could get into about that, but, um, but we can't just work on it electorally. Uh, so at the grassroots level, we really need to work on expanding economic democracy by unionizing um, and by building workers' cooperatives and credit unions. Uh, and these are just different ways of, of course, of just empowering people wherever they are at and uh, whatever social group they are in. Um, empowering people materially and economically uh, is something that will lead to more broader equal outcomes or egalitarian outcomes, I would say, and more solidaristic outcomes. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, and I mean, really at the end of the day, when you have people who are making decisions for, you know, so much of the population that 
all they see are, are these profit motives. I mean, all they see are, you know, the profits margins that are there, but they, they don't seem to see their human neighbors or cataclysmic global weather events very clearly. Um, that's when you need to know we need to democratize it. And so that's kind of generally where, where I stand with a lot of that. Um, and it definitely influences my work as a poster artist. Um, you know, my more recent desire to cultivate a working class humanities in some way or another. Um, and definitely as, as my, as my, you know, in my career as an organizer with the Democratic Party of Georgia uh, in both the general election and in the Senate runoff. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that information. It sounds like you've definitely read a lot and have been influenced largely by, you know, popular social theorists and um, different thinkers. So thank you for sharing that. So my next question is, um, what are some non-negotiables that you feel are central to the social good? R.H. Tony, the famous moral economist, points out that society is stable because it's straining upwards. Um, so in our case, upwards is always outwards towards each other, right? Um, so we quickly recognize and dialogue with each other as humans that there are universal basic needs to sustain life, you know, food, clean water, housing, healthcare, education, transportation, uh, and definitely in our day, insurance and internet access. Um, so by their nature, these resources are universal. So making them universally accessible, irrespective of anyone's ability to pay, uh, is definitely the least we should expect from civil society. Uh, when we guarantee the basics of life for all, we make room for the equality and liberty needed to sustain democracy and honestly deal with every other issue or situation that we face as a nation or a social group. You've been a Christian for a while. And now that you've been like studying the Catholic church and like Catholic tradition, centuries of tradition, various saints, uh, maybe you picked up on Catholic social teaching and those different um, tenets that the Catholic church has. Um, how does, or how has, Catholic teachings or just general Christian, um, you know, knowledge and practice of like social welfare and promoting the social good and social justice and just justice in general inform your advocacy uh, and your fight for, um, you know, social progress? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a great question. I actually, part, one of the things that really drew me into the Catholic Church when I was sort of in my process of figuring out whether I wanted to be in the Orthodox Church or Catholic Church, one of the things that I really appreciated actually was that, you know, we have papal encyclicals in the Catholic Church. We have this documented response that's both theologically, economically, politically, socially informed in a really interesting way that is very consistent with Catholic theology. Uh, and so I, I really feel like a lot of those things do a lot of heavy lifting um, for us there in a way that was totally absent 100% from the Protestant world that I came from. And that was, you know, maybe not entirely uh, absent, but also not entirely present in the Orthodox Church as I understood it. Um, but I really appreciated what you said. You tweeted a while ago, um, you know, there were five points that he tweeted. Um, it was one, understand what it means to love God and neighbor. Two, understand what solidarity is. Three, understand what human dignity is. Um, four, stand up and speak out when one through three are being trampled on or abused. And then five, when you think you're done, start back at one. I thought that that was perfect. Yeah, I remember um, I posted that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was perfect. Um, but yeah, no, so the way I've come to translate my faith into politics, like more person, I guess more in the, 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 in the head level there, um, 
his because I, I would say that's perfect praxis and i think like that is yeah that's terrific and i definitely that's how i would apply it as well um but i definitely have have worked it through you know starting with the theology flowing through the philosophy ethics towards political philosophy and social theory um so even if you 100 percent disagree with everything i've said up until this point um you know as anybody listening you know i truly urge anyone listening to consider that the process is uh you know Ephraim, and I, I go forward uh, to make sure that everything lines up. Um, that's, I think, what's most important. Because even if we come to different conclusions at the end of the day, we're all Catholic. And I know that we can be at peace with our political differences um, if we're all confident that we're working through these questions together. Uh, so, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, no, the beauty of, like I mentioned before, Catholic social teaching, it definitely does a lot of that heavy lifting and definitely informs a lot of my political outlook. Um, there are a lot of quotes here that I could share. I want to make sure I'm, I'm respectful of your time and everything, but there's one Go in particular. Ahead. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, there's one in particular by Pope Pius 11 from, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher this, um, Quadra Gizmo Anno, Gizmo Anno. Um, and he basically says the distribution of created goods must be brought into conformity with the demands of the common good and social justice. For every sincere observer realizes that the vast differences between the few who hold excessive wealth and the many who live in destitution constitute a grave evil in modern society. Um, and that's not something that Bernie Sanders said. That's not something Elizabeth Warren said. That's not something that Karl Marx said. That's something that Pope Pius XI said. Um, and there's lots of quotes like this. And there's lots of sentiment like this all throughout these papal encyclicals. I've read through most of them right now. I'm looking at a pile of them right now next to me. It's not just Pope Francis either. That's the other thing too that I've really noticed becoming a Catholic at this time where American, especially white American Catholics are so divided over this, over, over Pope Francis and, and have such weird opinions about him. Um, that it's just wild to me. Cause like I hear what he has to say as I'm reading these papal encyclicals that are almost a hundred years old at different points. Uh, and it's all 100% consistent with, with what any other Pope has said before him, even, more conservative popes, you know? Um, and so there are other things that are out there, like there's a nice quick one, uh, charity cannot take the place of justice unfairly withheld. You know, there's a lot of people out there who believe that, you know, in trickle down economics or whatever, uh, that kind of believe, well, charity will make up for whatever's lacking. Um, no, it won't. You have to fight for justice for, for all here, okay? It's not just going to be about charity. It's not just going to be about, you know, uh, le leaving it up to someone's benevolence. No, justice. That's what's called for. Um, and there are a lot of other ones I, I like. Um, uh, there's specifically, you know, because I think that our concept of property is something that, that I think is really problematic in America uh, and in general right now, just in society. But um, there are lots of different quotes that reveal the social nature of, of even private or personal property uh, in a way that 100% make it okay for you to be taxed, that make it 100% okay for certain parts of the economy to be socialized in one way or another. Um, and so, yeah, I actually, it's really funny that this whole, this question really, like, as I was thinking about it, because when you sent it uh, before, um, before, I don't know if you saw it, but Sam Roach's debate with Trent Horn. Uh, where they debated, yeah, uh, where they debated um, socialism and capitalism and everything. Um, I thought it was very interesting that he decided to go towards thinking through, okay, well, there clearly have been Catholic socialists before. So you're, the way that you stated, 
this thing that you can't be Catholic and socialist is, is problematic. And so I actually went through and I found, let's see, sorry, I lost my notes here. I found 224 of them in history that were prominent, not just like random people in the background. Uh, and that's not even including trade unionists or feminists, because there's actually a lot more of those guys uh, that are there. Um, so wow, that's a lot. yeah, there really is. And that's just of the, like the more, the more uh, famous ones. And most of them are social Democrats. They mo- mostly are people who are focused on reforming uh, and making, creating more solidaristic and egalitarian outcomes. They're working in labor parties in the labor movement. Um, there was one in particular that I'll share one other quote. I, I'm a, I'm a big retweet guy. I don't know if you, you got that yet. Yeah, I love, I love retweeting. So that's why I, I quote people a lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's this one guy in particular in Canada named Joseph Burton, um, who was a Canadian, a socialist with the, co- uh, the cooperative Commonwealth Federation and a grand knight in the Knights of Columbus and a farmer. Uh, and he argued during political meetings in Saskatchewan at the time that their party was more in line with the demands of social justice that social justice made in papal encyclicals than other parties. And so what he said was, the church to which I belong condemns in no uncertain terms the type of socialism that interferes with a person's religious beliefs, which is opposed to ownership of private property. None of these are policies of the CCF, a social democratic party. Um, As the years have gone by, we've seen many kinds of socialism throughout the world. And for want of a better term, we have applied the philosophy and principles of the CCF and the expression socialist, because the fundamental principles of our policy are to build laws around the protection of society rather than the protection of capital. Um, and so I think that he really, he really like summarizes that super well. Um, and then the other thing, there's, there's, there's just kind of one other point too here that um, I'll bring back up R.H. Tani as well, uh, the moral economist I mentioned before. He says, the will to economic power, if it is sufficiently single-minded, brings riches. But if it is single-minded, it destroys the moral restraints which ought to condition the pursuit of such riches, and therefore also makes the pursuit of riches meaningless. For what gives meaning to economic activity as to any other activity is, as we have said, the purpose to which it is directed. Later on, he goes on to basically say something to the effect of um, man does not exist for the economy. The the economy exists for man, which is kind of, um, as I'm sure you know, a little loose iteration to what Jesus said about the Sabbath, actually. Um, But uh, but yeah, there and there are other lots of other Catholic theorists. Uh, R.H. Tani happens to be Anglican. Uh, he's, you know, echoing a ton of, of what papal encyclicals were echoing in that day. Um, but then there are tons of other Catholic theorists like Jacques Maritain, I mean, Tori Fanfani, um, who go on to pretty much affirm what he says that, you know, that social structures are sacramental in nature. Um, meaning that they, they draw us closer to God because as, as long as they are, because as long as they are unjust, they, they, they draw us away from God as much as they are just. They're drawing us towards God. And, you know, in the way that we actually, when we fight to reform those structures and make them more just, it is something that, that, that empowers the whole uh, in a way that is really powerful. And so, you know, that whole society is, is stable because it's training upwards. Um, so social, social justice leaders and movements, uh, you know, they're commonly accused of being rabble rousers insofar as, as you know, they are, we are opposing the downward thrust of capitalism, racism, imperialism, sexism, homophobia, and militarism, and proposing a renewed upward thrust towards solidarity and equal human dignity. Uh, 
that is present in all humans. So, so I wanted yeah. to get your, your, your brief take on something that you highlighted with this last point. So mm-hmm. commonly, you know, it's always said like, hey, whenever, for example, um, we want to pay people equal living wages. And then the counter argument is, oh, that's socialist. Or, hey, we want to provide uh, health care to all people and the government can do this. And then somebody will say, oh, that's socialized medicine. So in your opinion, like, how do you think we navigate away from this whole like label of, oh, that's everything is socialist basically when, you know, we're just trying to do some basic common sense things for, to help people in their situation. Like how do we get out of that, uh, that mindset, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, and I think that that is part of why I embrace the, why I embrace the term social democracy or, 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 just being a social democrat like i think like that's part of why i embrace that um because there are very real examples where you know for example the freest country in the world is new zealand that's a country that has had several times over labor governments social democratic governments that have empowered their people with the basic needs that they with 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 what they basically need um, while at the same time preserving those civil liberties. Because when you get into what's behind, why is it that people are scared of socialism? They're scared of socialism because they're scared of authoritarianism. Uh, and I think that that needs to be made forthright. You know, we are not here to take away any, anyone's, you know, land, on, on, you know, needlessly or anything like that. We're not here with the USSR or anything ridiculous like that, of course. Um, we're here because there is a toxic culture of political individualism that focuses solely on, on the ego of each person uh, and just lets them kind of do whatever they're going to do. Um, and so what we need to do is we need to foster uh, what Maritain actually calls civic amity, which is basically this idea of that we're all connected, especially as a country within our social groups, within um, the different communities that we are in. We need to begin to see ourselves as a part of a whole. Uh, And I think as Catholics, we have a very unique place to be doing that. You know, um, I watch and I mean, like I said before, you know, I lived in Hong Kong for a little while there and something that definitely divides how people in the East versus people in the West see themselves is that people in the East tend to see themselves more as a member of a whole, whereas people in the West see themselves as a whole bunch of different little holes, you know, walking around, you know, doing whatever they're going to need to do to survive. Um, we as Catholics within our theology are much more Eastern in thought. Like we may not embrace that or see that 100% in our American context because it's so dominated by this hyper-individualism, by this rugged individualism that kind of governs our society, our economy, or our politics. Um, but we need to redirect it more towards recognizing the fact that, no, we're part of a whole. You know, if my neighbor loses their job, if my neighbor goes through something awful, if my neighbor's not paid enough, my neighbor can't find childcare, that affects me. Um, and that's, and so therefore it's within my own self-interest um, to empower them and to make sure that they, they're thrive, not just surviving, but thriving. And I think that that is kind of a way that we can begin to switch away from that. Definitely a good piece of advice right there that you shared. So thank you for sharing. Uh, so my last question, um, hopefully by now in your um, you know, Catholic conversion process, you've gravitated to like a saint, maybe that you feel is like, hey, that's my guy or girl that I want to 
have this stellar relationship with in the communion of saints. Um, so who is a saint that you have discovered and what's something really special about that person? Yeah, it was a great question. Yeah, I, um, there were three that came to mind when you asked about it. There's one that is in particular that I think will be my confirmation saint, but the first one that comes to mind is St. Basil the Great. He was the one who I was reading a lot of at the time when I was first beginning to think about the fact that, that we need more economic democracy, uh, that we need this, this, we need to make sure that society works for everybody. Um, because he is someone that in his life, in his work, in his teaching, in his preaching, he just seems like a direct, continu direct continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Like everything that he writes feels like it's something you could like from the Mount. Um, and then the second one that I wanted to bring up was, was uh, St. Fotini, uh, sometimes called St. Fotine. Um, she is somewhat of a lesser known saint that had a life-changing experience where she met Christ uh, and it inspired her to take two kids all over the world, preaching the gospel, even taking it to the emperor at that time, telling him to govern justly, to stop killing and abusing Christians and other religious minorities, and to be baptized into the Catholic faith. Um, and so what stands out to me about her is that she was the woman that Jesus actually met at the well. Um, someone who Protestants like, like, you know, where I was coming from, never hear of again, because the Sola Scriptura dogma, you know, her life and her story stops there, but no, it actually continues. Um, and so it was so exciting to find that, you know, that she has her own life beyond what we have recorded in scripture that we know from because of tradition. Um, and so she goes on to actually become a martyr, um, you know, when armed men throw her of all places into a well which I think is so powerful because she meets Jesus at the well. And then that's where she, she meets her end and she steps into glory, you know? And I think like that is just such a powerful, uh, you know, total circle there. And then the last thing that I'll bring up that is, is uh, I'm definitely erring towards, you know, making my confirmation saying is St. Joseph, the worker, um, you know, I've always felt an affinity uh, for him as a patron saint of laborers and by extension, the labor movement, um, his position in the Holy Family gave rise to something I wrote a while back that was featured in this magazine called Macarena Magazine uh, that y'all should definitely check out if you get a chance. Um, it's not my own thing. I'm not self-promoting. I'm just throwing out there. It's, it's some, run by some really cool people. Uh, that's it. But the, the point I was making is basically it speaks to our custody of creation as opposed to kind of this like landlord ownership over it. Um, so it's an idea that I'd like to develop further. But I think about his time as an asylee a lot when they were in Egypt in relation to Joseph in the Old Testament, waiting on God to move something, um, but also in our relationship um, or in the way that I would relate it to my experience in Hong Kong, where I was really getting to know a lot of the asylum seekers there uh, that were waiting, just waiting on God to move something. Um, and definitely, like I mentioned before, you know, my affinity form has definitely since firmed up. Uh, since I'll be catechized during the year of St. Joseph, which is something I'm definitely pretty excited about. That's all good, cool, man. Thank you for highlighting those three individuals and how they have impacted you and how they will impact you, you know, when you become a Catholic. Um, so that's definitely good to hear. Well, I definitely appreciated hearing all this information that you shared regarding, you know, your dynamic conversion, faith journey, plus, you know, your political philosophy and your take on the crucial issues of the day. Definitely important to hear, and it's always important to hear, 
it's not always important to have people who have you know diverse opinions and diverse topics all aimed at promoting you know the common good and the social good of others so definitely thank you for coming on and sharing this information yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it yeah so you guys should definitely pray for ian and his uh, conversion process as he undergoes the sacrament as he prepares for the sacrament of confirmation uh, hopefully um this year or whenever next year or whenever when he feels right um just keep him in prayer and um yeah thank you so this is going to conclude this episode of saintly witnesses and you guys can tune in for the next episode <laughs>